You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating. I'm your host, Rachel Heinemann, licensed mental health counselor. Each week, we explore the deeper meaning of our relationship with food and our body. I interview experts in the field of eating disorders and psychoanalysis to bring you the answers about why you do the things you do and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. All right, let's get started. You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating, episode 24 with Courtney Vickery. Courtney is a registered dietitian, certified intuitive eating counselor, and yoga teacher. She holds a bachelor's degree in political science and dietetics, as well as a master's degree in food and nutrition at the University of Georgia. Courtney has a private practice in Athens, Georgia, as you might be able to tell from her Southern accent and works a lot with college students. So we will be talking a lot about college students and the stressors that come with that stage of life. Stay tuned until the end of our conversation. I have a couple of thoughts, uh, taking a deep dive, if you will, under the surface sort of stuff, if you're into that jam. So stay tuned till the end for that. And let's jump right in. Courtney, thank you so much for taking the time today. I'm very excited about our conversation. Maybe before we jump in, can you introduce yourself and share what you do, who you work with? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. My name is Courtney Vickery, and I'm a dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor located in Athens, Georgia. I live here with my husband and two kids and two cats and a dog. And I work with- Oh, that's with a lot. Oh, it works for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a full house, but you know, it's worth it. <laughs> and I work with adults and college students who are either in eating disorder recovery, um, disordered eating, or they're just interested in intuitive eating and have been chronic dieters for a while. So maybe for the both of us, this is not so unicorn because we interact with our, I guess, little small tribe over and over again. But for most dietitians, they don't do this work. So what brought you to this world? Yeah. So um, I'm actually an eating disorder survivor myself. I had an eating disorder from the time I was eight until I went into recovery at 22. So this is definitely something that's near and dear to my heart. And yeah, and I just kind of definitely was a factor into me going into this work. And I always had wanted to go into this area, but I also had to do my own healing first before I could jump into that, which is why my first degree is political science, because I wasn't quite ready to start studying nutrition yet. <laughs> Oh, wow. You know, in a way you are unicorn in that sense, just because so many people go into this world, dietetics or, or therapy to heal themselves. And, and hopefully on the journey, they find some sort of healing, but rarely do we find people who have entered on the other side for the most part. Yeah, definitely. I think has helped, you know, give me a better perspective on you know, kind of relating to this population and understanding what they're going through and also helping them understand that it is possible to recover and go on the other side. Well, so when you were in college, you were still kind of dabbling in eating disorder. And then once you were finished, when you went to school to get your, what is it called? Dietetic degree or is it a master's in what? What is it called? I have a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science, and then I went back and got a Bachelor of Science in Dietetics, and then I have a Master's in Foods and Nutrition, as well as a Dietetic Internship. Oh, wow. So uh, can you use those two? Can you use political science in any way to uh, help change in a more, I don't know, global level? 
So I originally went into political science because I thought I wanted to go to law school. And after working in the field of politics for a year, I decided that that was not what I wanted to do. And I felt like I could make more of a difference by going back and becoming a dietitian and helping people with nutrition and disordered eating. It's so interesting how people got to this place and, you know, how people choose their careers, just period. I was just going to say, it's funny that we kind of throw, you know, college students in at 18 years old and be like, what do you want to do for the rest of your life when they've never done any of it? Yeah. Which sort of leads exactly to what we're talking about today in that college students are embarking on a completely new world. Everything is new. It's so stressful. So it's a particularly difficult time for a lot of people. And unfortunately, the prevalence of eating disorders is quite high. So I wonder if you can speak to what makes college or just being the college age so stressful for people. So yeah, I would say, you know, coming from, you know, most of us have been at home with our family, our guardians, our parents, and for the most part, we don't really understand completely everything that they do for us in a way, <laughs> even the small things that take up so much of our mental energy that as you know, adolescents and children, we don't really realize all the things that they take care of for us. And then to go to college and all of a sudden have to, you know, be in a new place with new people and having a roommate that you may or may not have met before, then having the stress of all the classes, and then maybe you're working a job as well, and the peer pressure of all the things that may or may not be happening on your campus. Um, it's just a lot for any person to have happen to them, but also for them to have it happen when they're just 18, which is pretty young. Yeah, we seem to forget that 18 is, I mean, as much as we don't want this to be the case when we are 18, it's, we're still kids when we're 18 years old. Definitely, yes. <laughs> Maybe we can break down some of the things that you were talking about and sort of go into them a little bit more in depth about what happens and what's particularly stressful. So moving away from home, yes, things are done in a very specific way at home. And then you go to college and you don't have any of that done. What in your experience do people find particularly stressful about even just the keeping themselves afloat with chores and laundry and things like that? Yeah, I think it's this idea of time management, but also the idea that time management has to be perfect and that's not possible. So I'm always hesitant to talk even about time management because I feel like that puts even more stress on to us and students as well. It's definitely something to practice, but it's not something to be a perfectionist about because again, there's no perfect balance. But yeah, I think, I know, especially if they are, for example, on a meal plan, at the university and they know how expensive that may be for their parents or guardian to be paying for them. So they feel obligated to eat at the cafeteria or the meal plan. And, you know, maybe it's not things that they would normally even eat, or they just aren't sure like how to kind of create a meal that nourishes their body in a way that, you know, would benefit them. And then handling all the schedules and all of the stress of all the classes and groups that they're in and finding time to actually go and eat and nourish their body. You know, some of them have classes for six hours straight and maybe the professor doesn't allow them to eat in class or they feel too subconscious about eating in class you know, that's a long time to go without nourishing ourselves. Yeah. So maybe something that they never had to think about before. It's something that's just becoming a thing that they have to think about 
Definitely. Yeah. You know, they've always had the same schedule with high school and coming home and mom having the dinner on the table or whatever it may be. But now they have class until eight or nine o'clock at night. And how do they find a way to make that work and find ways to find meal times that work for them and food that they can prepare, have access to, et cetera? Yeah. I wonder if there's a piece of money here. So some kids go to college and they have everything paid for and mom and dad gives them spending money, which is wonderful for them. So maybe we're not exactly talking about that population, but for people who have to either make their own spending money, first of all, I'm sure they have a job that just, you know, makes them have even less time, but they're finding out that there are some foods that are a lot more expensive than other foods. Definitely. And not even necessarily just the price of it, but, you know, I always tell I work with dietetic students too and mentor them. And I always tell them, think about what the person has access to because that recipe may call for an oven, but how do you know that person has an oven? You know, how can they make a meal that fits within the you know financial situation that they're in and nourishes their body in a way that they need it to, but they only have a microwave or maybe they don't have anything. So just a lot of factors that go into it. And that's, again, very overwhelming for that person to try to even undertake um, in that already stressful situation. Yeah, I'm thinking of a very, very silly example because it's obviously not on the scale of not, have, not having a, an oven or a microwave. But I don't remember which cooking show this was, but it was one of those competitions where the kids compete. And there was one kid who was so excited to use the vanilla bean because it was so expensive to get it at home. And this is the program is paying for the vanilla bean. And I'm so excited to use fresh vanilla bean. And obviously it's a silly example because vanilla bean is, is extraordinarily expensive. And we're not exactly talking about affording a vanilla bean here, but there is an element to, I'm going to have to think about which foods I can eat, which recipes I can make, what ingredients or tools I have access to, or what time I have access to also. And all of that is a ton of energy. And if you already are, you know, dabbling or have disordered eating or are in any sort of recovery, you already may not have enough energy as it is to then put more energy into thinking about every little aspect of grocery shopping, you know, meal planning, preparing the meal, and then actually eating the meal. So it can almost seem so overwhelming that they just don't. I'm also thinking about a lot of college activities. So they have, let's say our activity for the day is whatever a meeting, meet and greet, whatever they do. I don't even remember what you do in college. (laughs) It's also a blur, (laughs) but very often there were lunchtime blocks. And even if lunchtime was a really long block and I didn't have anything to do, everything was always revolving around food. Now, obviously it's lunchtime. We all need to eat, but the focus on food, well, I guess I wonder if there's an extra emphasis on food or, or what the culture is that might affect them with food-centered activities. So I can only speak to the university at which I actually work part-time and most of my clients attend, but actually the class that I teach is at lunchtime. So I feel like there's really not a time that is not blocked out for them to eat. With COVID, they have put in more space in between the classes. Um, But there's really not a set time aside for them to have time to prepare a meal or sit down and eat a meal, um, depending on their schedule. Sometimes it may be that they have class all day, Tuesdays and Thursdays, but then they don't really have class Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So every day is different. 
So having to take that into account just adds another layer of it being more challenging. I wonder if we can pivot a little bit talking less about the specific food and financial choices and more so the kind of things that go underneath the surface and very specifically a lot of peer pressure and um, pressure to fit in. There's so much, um, I mean, some of it is unspoken, but there's so much pressure and competition. Um, And I wonder how that sort of affects people. Yeah, definitely. So I'm thinking of one of the clients I have and they dance and they, you know, it's never probably said completely outright, but there's always that undertone of what size is someone's uniform compared to your uniform? Um, You know, what are they eating during break versus what you're eating and kind of judging each other's choices without really saying it, but kind of it's implied or that person may just kind of feel like they're being judged because from what they've experienced with their home life, where, you know, maybe diet culture is talked about a lot, then they assume that maybe others at college are also judging them. And so that sort of affects someone's potential food choices and their desire to manipulate their body or go even further than that. Definitely. Again, like, even if it's not dance, like if, you know, they talk about sizes and, you know, they're going shopping together and, or maybe, (laughs) I think they still go to shopping at places in in person, maybe at Target. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And, you know, just having to know what the other person is wearing as far as a size and then comparing yourself to that person and then thinking, well, if they can do it, then I can do it. But really that person's body is their body and your body is your own unique body. And what works, you know, as far as nourishing someone else's body may not work for yours. It may be restrictive for you. It's definitely a slippery slope. And then of course, not to mention all the the fad diet talk, you know, cutting out whole food groups or trying what they would consider a superfood, you know, think talks like that definitely has an effect on and another whole layer to what we already talked about with um, knowing what to buy at the grocery store and then what to fix for themselves. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about what either diet culture or wellness culture, whatever it's dressed up as, but I guess I'm thinking about people who actually have eating disorders, full-blown eating disorders, or even if they're on the disordered eating side of the spectrum, but there's so many people with eating disorders in college. And then for somebody who has they have the tendency to potentially develop an eating disorder and they're around this person. What happens? Yeah, it can definitely become a toxic environment pretty quickly if they're not cognizant of what's happening um, and are, you know, working closely with a treatment team, you know, with a therapist and a dietitian and a physician in talking these things out and having that support system because for both of them, right? Like if the person that's in recovery and then the person that's already prone to disordered eating and is kind of leaning toward the other end of the spectrum of developing an eating disorder, they could possibly kind of start to feed off of each other and compete with each other. And we definitely, you know, want to make sure that we are being aware of that as, you know, the programs that they have on campus and the talk that they allow in in the classes as well. Um, You know, being careful to not... I've had so many eating disorder clients who, you know, wanted to take either a health class or a nutrition class and something that the professor said that they didn't even realize could be harmful because they are in that mindset of an eating disorder or disordered eating. 
And then, you know, we have to work through it in the session because it's upset them so much because now they have internalized, you know, what may or may not have been said. Yeah. And, and that's also why we all have to be so careful about the words that we use and the analogies that we use and the metaphors, because we don't know what people are struggling with. And when we talk about any of this stuff, diet culture, weights or, or numbers in specific, it can be really triggering and we would have no idea. Yeah, definitely. Something that people talk about all the time is the freshman 15 and sort of been translated to the COVID-15 or the COVID-19, whatever sort of witty uh, spin people want. But there's there's this long-standing idea of the freshman 15, and I wonder if that sort of plays into a, a big part of this. Yeah, I think on you know both sides of you know coming into college and being afraid of that or being fearful of that happening can then you know again if you're in recovery can exacerbate um, any behaviors that you were doing before, and then on the other side of it, if you did gain some weight and your body changed because your body's going to change and you are becoming an older person and, and, you know, more of an adult and being able to kind of accept those changes to your body without kind of going down the spiral of wanting to control and change your body because everything else seems so out of control already. Yeah. It's so interesting because now that you say that most of my clients who have eating disorders in college started off gaining the freshman 15 and then freaked out sophomore year and vowed to never go back there. And they're, you know, they're sort of started a pretty intense spiral downward. Yeah. yeah. And I think too, you know, the aspect of going away per se for college and then coming back home for, you know, whatever it may be, a holiday or a break. And already, even if, even if your family system doesn't have that guilt, shame associated with your body shape or size, but already kind of feeling like that's going to happen when you go home because your body has changed and judging yourself for it. And then, like you said, like freaking out and then spiraling into behaviors that are actually more harmful. And this is also where a bit of family culture comes in, because if you're thinking about, I'm going to go home for the holidays, or I'm going to go home for break and they're going to notice that I've gained so much weight and they're going to, I don't know, judge me, even if they're not saying it implicitly or on the other side, I've lost weight and they're all going to praise me because, Oh, I look so incredible, which implies, you know, they both imply the same thing that there's an emphasis on what your body looks like that it's not, Oh, how is your first or second semester away from home in a completely new city doing things that are so scary and, and meeting people you didn't go with anyone and, all these adulting problems, it's, oh, you look fabulous or you kind of look terrible, which adds a whole nother layer of stress. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I have talked to students about even again, maybe people that don't even realize what they're saying and the harm that they're causing by comments that they're making on either side of the spectrum of just commenting on anyone's body at all or talking about how something like a piece of clothing looks on them and inferring that Mm -hmm. it looks better or worse just because of the shape or size of their body. Because again, they're going to internalize that. And again, if they're in recovery, then the eating disorder voice is going to cling to that and try to give them another reason to, you know, participate in behaviors. Sure. Um, something else that I'm thinking about is it, college culture is very much, well, not every college, but there are some colleges that are pretty focused on partying, or even if it's not the college culture, you're finally away from home. And, um, you know, however people do this illegally, because if you're 18, you're still underage, uh, there's a lot of drinking and, you know, drugs 
And I wonder if that plays any part in this. I'm sure it does, but what is it? Yeah, I would say, you know, from things I've heard from clients and, you know, from my own experience with being in college and wanting to, you know, try to try new drinks and things that are exciting. If you're already participating in behaviors or if you're counting calories, et cetera, if they're using, you know, what they would consider using their calories on that alcoholic beverages, then they're going to restrict typically. And so then when they restrict and then they aren't nourishing their body and then they drink alcohol, then they feel even more sick than they would. And it just starts this whole cycle. And, you know, especially if they purge or anything like that, the nausea that's already associated with that just is exacerbated even more. And it just begins this whole other cycle of issues and behaviors that can just continue to be on the hamster wheel of behaviors with Yeah. And something even just with, you know, smoking marijuana is the sort of fear of I'm not going to smoke because then I'm going to get the munchies, which, you know, as an adult, it's not entirely a terrible thing if you don't smoke up, but these decisions are being driven by, am I going to need to eat more? Will I be able to get away with not eating? How is this going to manipulate my appetite, et cetera, which is, you know, obviously not healthy. Definitely disconnects you from being able to be in touch with your hunger cues and what your body is telling you it needs as far as food. Yeah. I mean, we know this just, or I figured in college eating disorders are pretty prevalent. I wonder, is that true? Like, are there numbers for this stuff? What are they? If there are, sorry, if I'm putting you on the spot, you can tell me you don't know. Um, Yeah, no, um, that, you know, the National Eating Disorder Association has some numbers from some studies that they've hosted. um, And they found that, you know, four to 10% of men in college suffer from an eating disorder and those rates are on the, on the rise and 10 to 20% of women in college suffer from an eating disorder. So it's no, that's a really big number, one or two out of 10. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also, you know, makes us wonder, we tend to think of eating disorders as something affecting a lot of women. And that's not the only population that eating disorders affect. And we really have to normalize this outside of just women because it's terrifying for every population. And it's so sort of ignored in men and just non-women that it's it's something that we're really harming the people who are suffering. And I think you know, it's definitely an issue and also just kind of educating providers on what an eating disorder or disordered eating looks like in a man, because it may not look the same as it does for women. You know, I had a, I had a client yesterday talking to me about their partner and some of the behaviors that they were doing that were very much, you know, typical of what a man would be doing as far as leaning and bulking up and stuff. And we were just talking about how we need to be aware of, is that disordered for them? Because they're just as susceptible as we are. So the bulking up, working out nonstop, trying to become stronger, that's all disordered if, if taken to the extreme. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, I always talk to clients about the intention behind things and, you know, the relationship that we have with food and exercise in our body. Yeah. And also thinking about that, you know, for the most part, and this is anecdotally, but for the most part, eating disorders have developed either late in high school or early in college. And so this is such a pivotal moment or years for people and that anybody who is dieting or experiencing some sort of disordered eating, 
that is such a slippery slope for the development of a full-blown eating disorder. And again, not to say that disordered eating isn't a problem because it definitely is. And if someone is struggling with disordered eating, they deserve and should get help, but that there's so much more of a likelihood that that will translate into a full-blown eating disorder later or very soon. Definitely, definitely a transformative years that, you know, can affect you for the rest of your life. So if let's say somebody is sort of resonating with a lot of this stuff and they're noticing that they have at the very least a complicated relationship with food and their body and they're in college, whether they're on campus or not, what are some things that they can do to help themselves? I would say, you know, depending on how much it's affecting their life, you know, first kind of sitting down and and thinking about what your values are and whether or not the behaviors and how much time and energy you're focusing on food or calorie counting or exercising. And does that align with where your values are? And then if you find that, you know, you do need a little bit more support or help, you know, first starting out by maybe looking at reading some books, um, Anti-Diet by Christy Harrison, um, I don't know if we can cuss on this podcast, but the Epit Diet, Caroline Dooner, um, and then of course, yeah. and of course, Intuitive Eating, the book. And then after that, you know, most college campuses have some kind of health center with some kind of counseling services. So maybe trying to find a therapist or a dietitian that can help you. And you know, I'm going to specifically say to try to find someone that's anti-diet because we don't want them to cause more harm for you. Yeah, I was actually thinking that as you're saying it, that maybe seeing a dietitian who's a weight loss dietitian actually might cause more harm. So that'll be a little tricky to go there. But also that if you don't end up at the counseling center or the health center, you just start there and they have referrals for people in the community. They're just a really great resource. What if I'm a parent listening to this and I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, my kid's 19 and they've been in college for an entire year. I don't know what's going on. I don't know anything about this. That's why I'm listening to this. So how can I either support my kid or just, I don't know, make sure that they're okay? First of all, that would mean that you're an excellent parent. So don't be so hard on yourself because I feel that to my oh, thanks, <laughs> thanks, thanks. I feel that to <laughs> the parents of, you know, the students and kids I work with all the time because it, it is so hard to try to support a loved one that is either in an eating disorder recovery or disordered eating. But a couple of ideas is the um, you know, National Eating Disorder Association Parent Toolkit is on their website for free. Um, a couple of books are How to Nourish Your Child Through an Eating Disorder by Casey Crosby and Wendy Sterling. And then when your teen has an eating disorder by Lauren Mulheim are some good books to kind of start out with as far as educating ourselves on what we're looking for and how to support them in a way that we're not pushing them away more. Because I think that's the the hard part. Yeah. I'm going to link to the books that you've mentioned in the show notes so that people aren't like rewinding and furiously taking notes. So all those links are going to be in the show notes. I wonder also, and this is mostly because some of the experience that I have where if there's one person in the family who has some sort of disordered eating or eating disorder, it's not sort of occurring in a vacuum, if you will. And if your kid has this, then it's really important, very, very challenging, but also really important to look at our own relationship with food. Um, or the ways that we think about weight or 
you know, gaining weight, losing weight, anything about that, how we think about body image and how we talk about just food in general. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely encourage the parents that I speak with to kind of start exploring their own ideas around dieting and body size and what they think is healthy to them because they can cause harm in the things that they say to their child if they are insinuating that, you know, you can recover if you still stay within this healthy area. And that's not supportive or helpful, even though they may think that it is. So they just have to kind of do some of their own internal work if they're ready to do that in order to really truly support their child. Yeah. And one thing that I'm thinking about, if a college student does have an eating disorder and they do need to go to a higher level of care, and that means they have to take some time off, it is such a difficult decision for people to make because, I mean, of so many reasons, but one thing is that well, all my friends are going to be graduating this semester in this year, and I'm going to be behind them and I'm going to miss so much, even if it's just one semester, but that, oh, if you don't do it now, then it's just harming this student even further down the line. And I guess I wonder how you work with people to encourage them to take that step. Yeah, I've had that happen so many times. I'm actually working with a client right now and it is incredibly difficult for them. And it's incredibly more difficult for them if they don't have a support system in place or financial you know, ability mm-hmm. to go to a higher level of care, because even just finding, you know, the right treatment center for you and what you need, and then the financial side of it. And do they take your insurance? And can you do a, you know, a program that allows you to still be part-time as a student? Cause maybe your health insurance is tied to you being a student. It's just so many factors to take into consideration. And, you know, I try to have like a very good relationship with my clients and, you know, hopefully they trust me. And when I say, I don't, you know, I don't say things lightly. So if I, you know, show them the reasoning behind like why you need a higher level of care and why this is benefiting you, like this is all we care about is helping you. And we're not going to say it doesn't suck to miss a semester or be behind your friends. That definitely sucks, but you are our number one priority. Exactly. Yeah. And sort of coming to a place of acceptance that life is not a timeline. And just because you might finish college later or really fill in the blank, anything later than the people who you're around, it doesn't mean that you lose. It's not a race. It just means that you're taking care of yourself in the way that you need to take care of yourself. And you're very different from people around you. That's the case for everybody. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today. I appreciate our conversation. I think it was really helpful. Before I let you go, where can our listeners find you? I am on Instagram at Vickery Wellness. I'm on Facebook and Pinterest. And you can also sign up for my newsletter on my website at vickerywellness.com. Okay. And we'll link to all those in the show notes again, so people can find it. Thank you so much. Hey, I'm back. I had some thoughts. When we talk about the prevalence of college students, I found myself wondering why? Why is it the case that when somebody goes off to college, has this change in their schedule and their environment 
how does that make them more susceptible to eating disorders? And yes, we've talked about the increased level of stress and so many things changing. You've just heard that. Those are great reasons. But something nagging inside of me, the part of me that wants to go deep, asks, okay, but why? And I was thinking about anybody who moves away from their home, the home that they feel safe in, the home that their parents or their caregivers are. And this can happen at any stage. We just talk about college because this is the most popular time that people leave their home. Now, if you think about it, moving out is sort of the ultimate or one of the ultimate examples of separating from one's parents. We're becoming individuals. We're taking on adult responsibility. And thinking about attachment over here, that if we have a secure attachment with our parents or original caregivers, then it feels okay to venture out and to do our own thing because we know that they're going to be there when we come back. And we know that they're going to interact with us in a normal, loving way when we come back. But if there's anything shaky about our attachment to our original caregivers or parents, and again, this is completely through the lens of attachment, separating or individuating is particularly anxiety-provoking. This is any sort of insecure attachment. So if we think about the idea of a kid, in essence, an 18-year-old kid moving away, a very literal example of separating, that might cause a tremendous amount of anxiety if the attachment isn't quite secure. And then we can fill in all the blanks. Once there's this shaky thing going on, then all the others are just a recipe for disaster. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. If you enjoyed today's episode and you know someone who may as well, please share it. Not only does it help us reach more people, it really makes my day to know that this show is making a difference. All right, talk next time.